Hello and welcome to Michigan and Other Mayhem, the show about Michigan, murder, mysteries, histories, and other mayhem from around the world. Your hosts are Allie and Jen. Okay, Jen, let's do this thing. Hello, Jen. Hello, Allie. What are you doing? I'm reaching over for my the biggest cup of coffee I've ever had in my life. <laughs> yeah. I got one of these oversized coffee cups. I'm not like I don't normally use them because your coffee gets cold so fast. Oh yeah. But I'm like, shit, I can fit like four cups in this. And you're like, and I'll drink it right now. So we're good. <laughs> right. But I'm think that's what I'm thinking. So I'm testing it out, I'm taking it for a test run. Weirdly enough, I am drinking from our one of our largest cups that my daughter bought us in Victoria, Canada, while she was on a cruise. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, it's a big cup, but it's the one of the kind that kind of bulges out in the middle and then gets smaller towards the top, so it kind of holds some of the warmth in. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, it's my favorite, I must say. That's my favorite. You know. Been trying to win the lotto. I've been us as well. Very diligent. Yeah, it's been up there. It's been up there lately. I've won forty two dollars so far. I'm oh well goodness. on my way. Nice. I don't even know if we've looked at ours because we're that good at this. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. Well, and then yeah. it depends on like, you know, you just want to hit May. You know, you didn't because the pot just keeps raising. Yeah, well, you like know that if someone won the big one, you'd, you'd hear about it, so you'd know to check your shit, you know what I mean? <laughs> right, right. Yeah. So, um, yep, nobody won again, so I'm thinking that, I mean, I had the feeling yesterday I was going to win, but. Lo and behold. Lo and behold, <laughs> something happened. Yeah. It's rigged. Okay, so I think that we should bring up that we have two episodes left, and then this is over, our podcast is done. We'll stop at 110 episodes. I think it is because I think this is 109. 110 episodes. Everyone yeah. has listened to us. These poor people. I hope they're okay. And I'm sorry. They're yeah, okay. I know. Yeah. <laughs> so if you need any therapy or something, I do have a minor in psychology. I don't think you go to the person that caused you to need therapy to get therapy. True. Maybe, maybe that is not the best idea. Right. Maybe not. But if, but if you want to, I'm here. Yeah. And we will say that the name of it next episode, we're just going to be on a different podcast with an additional member. So we'll, and what will we be doing? Oh, talking about movies. movies. Bad ones, too. <laughs> so like my favorite kind, because my own motto is the worse, the better. Let's Let's just let me tell everybody. Okay. I'm going to tell everybody. So Allie called, told me what we were doing. Of course, it's a good sister-in-law that I am. I'm on board. True. They give me a movie. Oh, yeah, people, you need to go to the new podcast. Oh, yeah. I don't, I don't think I can get those hours back. But you want to hear about how I can't get those hours back. Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel- watched some. And I thought, yeah, (laughs) I I didn't even know. And and I think everybody should know, like, you watch movies, you watch TV, and then there's me. Like, maybe I'll get hooked on something and I'll, like, binge watch it, like, crown. I'll binge watch it, and then I won't watch TV for, like, two months. 
I don't watch movies. If I go to the movie theater, I fall asleep. I was glued to the TV for this one, though. <laughs> because I was like, you got to be kidding me. Like, it's this like, well, even it's like watching a, a slow car crash, right? You're like, oh, my God, you couldn't look away because you're just waiting for the car crash to finally end. <laughs> Yeah, I was trying to figure out how in the hell that got made. So yeah. everybody, yeah, it, if right. nothing else, you got to go over to the, when we start our new podcast, you got to go over there because you got to hear what I have to say. Right. And we'll give all the details in the next episode. But for this one, I actually have a kind of a long one. I'm going over things that were solved with DNA. And one is Jack the Ripper. What do you have? I have, oh, you have Jen. Let's see. <laughs> I have the uh, disappearance of a Michigan State student, Krista Luth, L U E T H. Okay. Oh. Could be. We're the worst at this. We've been in trouble so many times. I can't wait till we don't have to do that. <laughs> <laughs> I know. That's actually what's funny because I was sitting here thinking to myself and like I was saying, like, oh, I won't be corrected anymore on that. Yeah. That's well, I okay. I don't gonna, mind. I mean, I would get... correct us on the way we say a character's name now. <laughs> right. But that's a so little bit I, easier. Don't worry. I'm going to avoid that by saying the big tall man with no shirt or right? the, the, yeah, I got that under control. But nice. at least, you know, I always say when I see those comments, we spell it out. We do our best. Right. You know it. You know it. Let's hear it, though. You want to go first? Yeah, I can. Okay. All right. In November 2008, Krista, age 34, disappeared. She was known to keep in close contact with her family and friends. So when they had not heard from her, of course, it raised a red flag. Okay. During the investigation, it was revealed she had recently broke up with her boyfriend, Brad, Cornea, C-O-U-R-N-A-Y-A. Okay. <laughs> Krista had told people how Brad would consistently call her after the breakup. So, obviously, he wasn't, like, happy about it. Right. When going through her home, things were there indicating, you know, that she wouldn't be gone for long. So... Her lights were still on. She okay. did dinner on the stove, but it was like covered up. Like when you like make dinner and then you got to run to the store real quick. So you put, cover, you know, cover it up with a plate or whatever. Yeah. That's funny. I also use a plate as a lid. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like it's just easier. <laughs> right. You're trying to find an actual freaking lid in this house. Oh, yeah. And, like, and I did get new pots. Uh, side note, I got new pots and pans. And they, for Christmas, they yeah, they don't come with lids. What? Like, you got to buy them separate. So oh, wow. I have the lid separate. So that's why plates just work. Plates and platters. I never <laughs> put anything on a damn platter, but I'll put it over my pot. True. <laughs> um, so Brad was. Um, now, now I'm just thinking about so, pots and pans. For I'm sorry. I'm ADD. <laughs> I no, think know. <laughs> I think it's easy uh, to tell just by talking to me. Yeah. 109 <laughs> episodes. I'm used to that. Yeah. Sorry. Brad was, no, this time. 
Brad was shown <laughs> on cell phone records to be the last call to her phone. So Brad was the last call to her cell phone. So he, okay, yeah. So, you know, I'm sorry, Brad, but it's looking pretty bad for you right now. Right. So yeah. the same night, Brad's truck was broken down on US 127 and police had stopped and recorded it. He, nothing, they didn't see anything suspicious. It was just, you know, his car was broken down on the side of the road. Okay. What, why that's so significant though is they tied, this tied into a search months later in that same area, they found her driver's license or cell phone or credit cards. Ooh, really not looking good for Brad right now. Right. And then add on to it that the police talked to Brad repeatedly over the years and his story always was inconsistent. Okay. So no so November two thousand eight she goes missing. September two thousand nine the police declared that her disappearance was a homicide. Okay. September twenty fourteen. So going from twenty nine 2009 to 2014 Brad was named the prime and only suspect okay then fast forward to December 2020 Brad was charged with her murder wow that's a while to wait right what happened well I have I think it's all about just getting going through it going through everything I would assume, because nobody said anything like, I think it was putting all the pieces together because just to be clear, her body was never found. Oh, 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 okay. The only only thing that they have are those items they, uh, from my understanding of all Mm -hmm. the news stories, they just have her, some of her personal items. Okay. Actually, weirdly enough, I was just talking to a coworker yesterday about charging people with murder, even though you don't have a body. Well, I don't think you need a body. Not anymore, but you used to. I think it's. <laughs> I think it's. I think it's helpful. Yeah. Well, I remember one of the first times they were able to charge somebody successfully with murder without a body is they were able to prove this woman was missing enough blood that she could not have survived it. So even though there wasn't a body, there was enough blood that they you, she had to be dead somewhere because they found the blood evidence. Huh. Yeah. Okay. I'm sorry. Keep... No. <laughs> I'm sorry that's to distract fine. you again. Okay. Well, that's it. Let, <laughs> oh, let's that's it. Okay. So that's the whole story. But this, yeah. this is a side note. I had to come with a side note. Okay. So I was reading, you know, flipping through the M Live and everything. I stumbled upon the Lansing State Journal. And they did a little thing about all of this. Okay. And I learned this guy is just a disgusting person. Not only could he have murdered her, because, you know, he hasn't been charged. So he's, you know, innocent until proven guilty. But he is currently serving up to 40 years for asking a child if they wanted to make some money while he was showing them obscene photos and sex videos of himself. The prosecutor was quoted in the Lansing State Journal saying he had no rehabilitation potential, number one reason he believes this is because Brad has a long criminal history filled with crimes, 
against women and children. Okay, then, Brad. And so this just brings up this, okay? Mm. It, there's a lot. If you want to know about this dude, the Lansing State Journal kind of gives you some dates and stuff of things he's done. But they're okay. all disgusting things. <sighs> and when you look at the dates, it's like, dude, did she not know? Like, so you maybe think that's you, th- I, do you think maybe in, that's why she broke up with him though? And yeah, all of a sudden she found out. I yeah, I like don't know, like, but Sir. it's like now <laughs> I'm thinking we just need to do some background checks on our like, man's. You, you single women out there need to do some background checks. Yeah, I must say I feel safe with your brother only because I've known him since we were. Well, he was 16, I was 20, but. But, um, uh, and I've kept contact with him throughout the years, but we didn't start dating to 2011. But I just like to say that, um, that's why I feel comfortable. If he managed right. to do something real nefarious, it, he was able to hide it from me these 25 years. Right. Well, <laughs> yeah. I'm telling you what, it's like, no, you know, there's some crimes, you know, people do when they're younger, yeah. like, you know, steal the stuff. So- steal something from the store or something or right. little things. But when you straight up have sexual, you know, crime on your record, you yeah. shouldn't date him. I know. It's, ugh, I know. Like runaway girl. All right. I'm going to tell you. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just. No, I got nothing else. Okay. <laughs> Dang it. I was, gonna, I was just going to tell you. Go ahead. Yeah. I'm ready. Tell me. I was gonna say, dang it, I thought you were gonna say something. <laughs> no, no, no. Other thing, okay. go ahead. I'm ready. Okay. All right. So I've got three DNA um stories that were solved. And one is Jack the Ripper, but I was like totally pumped, but then you get to the end and you find out it's not that great. But hold on. <laughs> I'll tell the story. Okay. All right. So the first one is Jessica Baggin. Oh, I got this from NBC News, AlaskaPublic.org, NBCMontana.com, people.com, Wikipedia. And here we go. So for the first is Jessica Baggin, and she lived in Sitka, Alaska, 1996. And on May 4th, she celebrated her 17th birthday at her sister's house, and then she walked home, and then that was the last time she was seen alive. Two days later, on May 6th, people searching for Jessica found the shirt she'd been wearing on her birthday. It was found just off this bike path that Jessica may have used to go home. And so they start searching farther, and that's when they find that less than um, two hours after her top was found, her body was found. She had been raped, and she'd been covered with this log at the trunk of this hollow tree. And she was just a few blocks from home on a well-used path that had some like visibility, like someone could see you if you were in. And um, it, so it just basically like shook the community. And nine days after her uh, body was found, this male contacted the police department and he confessed to raping her. And there was no evidence to link Richard Bingman to the crime. He actually, Richard actually had mental cognition issues and they, it's believed that the confession was coerced from him and he was acquitted (laughs) during trial. So it's one of those where I think that everybody's up in arms. The cops want to blame somebody they find a dude with problems. They, you know, get him mentally confused or, you know, or treat him poorly until he admits to it. But then in the end, it all falls apart. No evidence. Yeah. So in 2018, 
Investigators with the state of Alaska, they decide to use genetic genealogy to help save the case. Save, not save it, solve it. And using the DNA from the rape. So they use Parabon Nanolabs. This is a company that we've talked about before. And Stephen Allen Branch, who was then 66 years old, was found to be the genetic match. And he, he would be about 44 years old during the crime. He's 66 now. Well, in 2018, Stephen had lived in Sitka during the time of the murder, which was 1996. And although um, he did move to Arkansas in 2010 and in March of 1996, just before Jessica's murder, which occurs in May. Right. So in March, her her murder occurred in May. And then in March, he was investigated by Alaskan police for sexually assaulting a different teenage girl. And he was acquitted for that attack in 1997. So a girl says he has attacks her in March. Jessica dies in May. And he gets it, a few months later, he gets acquitted of the original March attack in 1997. Investigators, they fly to Stephen Branch's house in Arkansas to question him. And he refuses to speak to them. He refuses to provide a DNA sample. And then the investigators, they obtain a warrant to receive a DNA sample from a judge and then they find out 30 minutes after they left his home he committed suicide so they go get the warrant and on their way back and they find out he already committed suicide so they're able to use this dna prove that it's him so with the cooperation of its relatives so they closed it by exception because you're not able to put him on trial which i didn't really think about that but because he killed himself they closed it Mm -hmm. considered him the murderer and the other one, huh. I know, right? I was like, wow. just think about it, motherfucker. Something you did in the 1990s still coming back to get you. Right. I love that. <laughs> I've talked about Those are much, the best stories. Yes, I love the like the forensic genealogy ones. I was like, get that bitch. I've got actually another one, though, to tell you that it was also solved the same way. So Siobhan McGinnis, she was about five years old on February 5th, 1974. And she walked a short distance between a friend's home and her own home in Missoula, Montana. And she disappears before she can get home. And it's just like this really short distance. And two days later, her body's found and she had been sexually assaulted. And she was, her body was discovered just off of interstate 90 by the, I think it's Tura exit T U R a H. She was in a, a culvert and her body was in a culvert. She had additional trauma to her head. They believe that she was hit on the head and she had stab wounds to her chest. And due to the sexual assault, and they did a really careful preservation of the items involved in the murder, they were able to find DNA evidence. And the Missoula County Sheriff's Office cold case squad worked with Othram, which is a company that I've also (laughs) talked about before that does forensic genealogy. And they were able to identify Richard William Davis, who would have been 32 years old at the time of Siobhan's murder. And Richard is not connected to the state of Montana and the authorities believe that he was passing through as a truck driver at the time that he abducted and murdered Siobhan. He died at age 70 in 2012 and Richard hasn't been connected to any other crimes currently, but his information has been entered into national databases to help other cold cases that need resolution. So they believe that he's murdered other little girls or boys and Uh They put his stuff in a database because they're like, I think this is going to help. And according to his obituary, though, he was married with four adult daughters. He had a lot of grandchildren. 
and his um, I don't know how, oh, I forgot how to look how to pronounce her name, but it's called O O N A. Siobhan's half sister said that the family of Richard William Davis reached out to her family, and she's quoted as saying, "Quote: They sent us a very lovely statement to our family from theirs." And they're also experiencing their own family tragedy. Because just think about it. They didn't know that their dad was a possible, well, he was a child murderer, rapist. Maybe they didn't know he was a child rapist. And that, you know, he may, they they suspect him to be a a serial killer. You know what I mean? So they're kind of Mm -hmm. fucked up too. So she said, I'd like to ask that you, if you know anybody who's looking into this case, please also respect their privacy as they are healing right now. And had absolutely no idea that somebody they loved would have been capable of such a thing. End quote. Isn't she like the sweetest person in the world? Right. Yeah. And after they looked after, so for 46 years, Stephen McGinnis, or Stefan maybe, I think it's Stephen. He was finally relieved to know who took his daughter for him from him. And it's okay you know, to him that the man's dead and won't be tried. He's just happy to know what happened to his daughter or actually who happened to his daughter. And I was like, oh, right. Wow, 46 years is a long time. It's a long time to wait. Yes. So now I'm going to tell you about Jack the Ripper. This is. I love Jack the Ripper. Okay. Are you ready? I love stories. But yeah. I'm okay. Ready. So I'm going to give you like a high level Jack the Ripper thing. And then I want to tell you about some DNA work that they did and why it may or may not mean it, that, that it may or may not belong to Jack the Ripper. But we'll find out. So I use like history.com, Wikipedia, abcnews.go.com, and the seattletimes.com. Jack the Ripper. In 1888, a serial killer terrorized the city of London in England, specifically in Whitechapel. And five women who were killed from August 7th till September 10th were definitely believed to be his victims because other women were murdered at the same time. Because it was a time for murder. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And women are particularly yeah. vulnerable and women who do sex work are really super fucking vulnerable because you take guys to private places and then they kill you. But they were, police are able to firmly attach, you know, five to the same killer. Those are the, like the, the ones everyone knows for sure. Some sources add two other women. One is um, Emma Elizabeth Smith and the other one is Martha Tabram. But they're not part of what's referred to as the Canon Five. Letters were sent to the Metropolitan uh, London Metropolitan Police Service, often known as Scotland Yard, which I had a fascination with as a child. I loved everything Scotland Yard. <laughs> and mm-hmm. um, the killer supposedly sent them, and he signed the letters, Jack the Ripper. That's where we get the nickname. So the first one, Mary Nichols, Mary Ann Nichols, was first con- the first confirmed victim. She was found on Bucks Row in Whitechapel. Mary had been found murdered August 31st, 1888. A friend had seen her alive about an hour before her body had been found and her throat had two deep lacerations that cut, cut her down to the bone and her lower abdomen had been cut and ripped open and her bowels were partially hanging out and she'd also been stabbed twice in her vagina. Oh, <sighs> and about a week later, September 8th, the dead body of Annie Chapman was found and like Mary or Marianne, Annie had deep lacerations across her throat and her abdomen had been cut open. Annie's killer had placed a portion of her stomach on her shoulder while setting different pieces of flesh and small intestine on her right shoulder. And at the end of the month, on September 30th, two women were found uh, murdered. Elizabeth, Elizabeth Stride, who shared the same occupation as the other victims. She was found with her throat cut. 
But because she had died because of a single slash across her neck, authorities weren't sure if they should be like, oh, I don't know, this is part of the serial killer. And the other victim that was found that morning was Catherine Eddowes, and she also had her throat cut. Uh, But she's the one where her abdomen had also been cut open. Her intestines had been placed over her right shoulder. And the killer just went extra while murdering Catherine because he mutilated various facial features like her nose and eyelid cheek and her left left kidney and a major portion of her uterus were removed and a section of her silk shawl was discovered in front of a tenement below graffiti that detectives they weren't sure if the graffiti belonged to the murder so about a week after elizabeth and Catherine were located the fifth and final victim of the jack the ripper was uncovered that was mary jane kelly she was murdered November 8th or maybe the early 9th. And her killer had a lot of time to work on mutilating her body. And this death took place in the room that Mary lived in. And the others had been executed in public. So he had a lot of time and privacy. Mary's face was slashed beyond recognition. Her throat was cut. All of her organs had been removed from her abdomen. Portions of her thigh and some of her internal organs were left on the bedside table. And after her brutal death and dismemberment, the killings stopped. And there's speculation that the killer was jailed or he was placed in an asylum or he left the country, you know, something and just cut it off. The detectives had over 100 suspects, but the main list is pared down to 14. And the silk shawl that had become that had belonged to Catherine Eddowes is the only piece of evidence that's still available from the crime scenes today. Right. So the silk shawl had semen on it and there was enough DNA that investigators were able to test for mitochondrial DNA, which is passed down from mother to child. And the DNA sequence found in the semen was matched to other suspects, to one of the suspects, which is Aaron Kosminski. They used the semen DNA and they matched it to his maternal descendants. Now, Aaron Kosminski moved from Poland to England in the 1880s. And he lived in Whitechapel where the murders were occurred. And in 1891, he was institutionalized for threatening a woman with a knife. And Aaron was the only person to to say um, back in the day that he was an eyewitness to one of the people, to one of the women being murdered. So like, oh, you know, that's we, you and I know that's a sign when people are like, oh, I saw Mm -hmm. it happen. You know, it wasn't me, but I saw it, you know. So not everybody agrees with the conclusion of the DNA testing because it was done by these authors of a book that were working on this book together. And then their findings weren't peer reviewed, which you should really do if you ever do an experiment. And people have read their writings and they disagree, disagree with the conclusions. So I got super pumped and it wasn't real. Yeah. And so, I mean, it might be real, but we don't know. Oh, look, actually, I have one more story. Are you ready? <laughs> I didn't realize it. I'm sorry, Jen. No, right on. Go for okay, it. Okay, here's Susan Galvin. So May of 2019, a 52-year-old murder case was solved using forensic gene- genealogy. As you could tell, I really like it. I really do like forensic genealogy. Mm-hmm. So in July of 1967, Susan Gavin, she's a 20-year-old records clerk. She was found raped and strangled in a parking garage elevator. And the police land on this main subject, this man who worked as a clown. See? Suspicious behavior right there, right? Right. Right. He was also seen as suspicious because he was seen with Susan a few days before she was murdered. And then like a couple of days after she's murdered, he quits his job. And the man that worked 
in, in 2016, the man that worked as a clown, he was located in Utah, and they used his DNA to test the DNA collect, collected at the scene of the murder, and not a match. They've been fucking with this well, guy for 52 years, not a match, or whatever. Oh, yeah, 50 years, not a match. Oh, shit. Yes. So in 2018, the DNA information was then taken to Parabon Nanolabs, which I just talked about earlier, and they're a group of leading investigators, so... Uh, for for <laughs> genealogy, you all right, partner? Yeah, I thought we lost you for a minute there. <laughs> Cece Moore, who's known for her DNA work on the TV show Finding Your Roots, which I fucking love, worked on this case, and she found Frank Whippich, a former United States soldier who would have been 26 at the time of Susan's murder. Frank died from complications of diabetes in 1987, 20 years after he murdered Susan. Frank's remains were exhumed and his DNA was collected and it did match the sample left on Susan. And investigators are now trying to look into other murders that Frank Whippich might have committed and because they also suspect him of being a serial rapist and murderer. They're looking at rapes and murders committed in Oregon, Alaska, New York, and Germany. These are places that he was stationed while in the service. And the only record Frank head was for larceny which happened in 1971 the year his wife divorced him he served nine months in jail after being convicted and frank had been arrested for a weapons defense according to his family in 1975 but the seattle police weren't able to find any paperwork for those charges but his family says that frank had been arrested for impersonating a police officer including wearing a fake uniform and pulling people over and the weapons charge was um because during the stops, he was wearing a gun. But none of the detectives mm. who worked the case in 1967 are still alive, so they just can't find any, any evidence. But his family's like, I swear to God, this happened. The cops are like, I don't know, man. We don't have any paperwork. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Is that not crazy? That's crazy. Yeah. I just love forensic genealogy. You can just read a pattern right there. It's really cool. Yeah. All right, Jen, I will talk to you later. For tomorrow. See ya. See ya. Bye. Contact us at anchor or Michigan and other mayhem at gmail.com or on Facebook to join the conversation, listen to the podcast, or correct us when necessary. Rate and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast provider. Bye bye now.